Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneer's Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. Hello and a warm welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West from Pioneers Post. And a very warm welcome to Rebecca White, who is the founder and CEO of Your Own Place Kick, it's a community interest company. Uh, it's a social enterprise based in Norwich in the east of England that's on a mission to prevent homelessness. And we're going to hear more about how in a minute. Rebecca herself says she's worked as what she describes as both poacher and gamekeeper. So I guess that means both on the local authority side um, as a supported housing commissioner and she says decommissioner um, and for a prominent homelessness and youth charity Catch 22 based in South London. She's also a qualified secondary school teacher. Now, Rebecca says her experiences inspired her to, she says, unashamedly want to create an organisation that did things differently. So almost 10 years ago in October 2023, she did exactly that. And now she's here to share her story and some of her experiences during the past decade. So, Rebecca, welcome to the Good Leaders podcast. Thank you very much indeed for having me. It's a pleasure. It's good to see you. So, okay, briefly, tell us about your own place. What does it do? Where are you based? What's your role there? Yep. So um, your own place, as you uh, said so eloquently, is a uh, CIC, is a social enterprise uh, with a mission to prevent homelessness. Um, and we see ourselves as a targeted prevention homelessness social enterprise. We started working out, uh, working with young people, and now we work with all ages uh, with a, a vision um, that everybody at the very least should have a safe and secure home. Um, and as you alluded to, uh, your own place comes from a place for me of um, seeing something really crucial missing for people who didn't have many of the advantages of what I shorthand call cash and connections. So without the safety net of cash and connections, a whole host of people are far more likely to become homeless. And so what we do is provide mostly group workshops and one-to-one -one support, um, ostensibly around money, housing, tenancy, and cost of living, knowledge, and skills. Um, but really, it's about confidence, behavior change, creating connections and networks mm -hmm. so that people have um, skills for life and not just life skills to right. navigate their way and keep their home. So you said you wanted to create an organization that did things differently, and you've, you've explained a bit of that, but... What, what else did that mean for you 10 years ago? I mean, I, I guess there were some really good aspects of your career in both public and charity sectors, but I'm guessing mm. clearly some frustrations as well. So what was that about? And, and... Um, yeah, I think I've sort of started to simplify it, sort of trying quite hard not to offend people mm. by saying, um, or not that hard, um, but, but, but by saying we do the bit that others don't. Yeah. So having worked in supported housing where... Um, 
previously when there were more grants in place to do that, you know, supported housing and key workers um, are supposed to support people supposedly to move to independence. And that's a, a theme I think I'll return to. Um, and a personal advisor is meant to support a young person leaving the care system with so-called independent living skills, people coming out of custody who perhaps are under 18 are also meant to um, be supported uh, to, to live independently. So independence is, is not desirable um, anyway, because it takes a village to raise someone um, and we want interdependence, as I said, mm. connections and networks, um, but also just that that work isn't happening. It's right. simply not happening. And it, it, it may matter less for someone like me who, who stayed in the family longer, you know, the average person now leaves home at 29, um, but if you're a young person in the care system, you'll be leaving home at 18. So not only mm. um, are you are you ill prepared to navigate an increasingly complex and expensive world, but you haven't. But you're doing it at a younger age, which puts you more at risk because you're more likely to be on a lower income. Um, and then add that into not having the just the, the very the skills we take for granted of how to pay a water bill, how to sort out your council tax. What options do you actually have? What questions do you really need to ask when you're figuring out your housing options? Um, all sorts of knowledge that many of us, if we're lucky enough, get by osmosis from one or two parents, um, but for an awful lot of people, they don't get them and the consequences are dire. So for your own place, I, th I think just one more thing to say, I'd worked in supported housing and what you saw in supported housing was key workers who are often chasing the rent or the service charge and yeah. um, would then expect someone to engage in a budgeting workshop and that's a mismatch the person who's chasing you for rent should not be the person who's also supposedly providing this additional support because guess what if you're a bit yeah. behind with the rent you're going to avoid them and also it's a highly niche skilled role so what i wanted to do was create an organization where that was our only role we're not having to put out fires and, and manage crises and bricks mm. and mortar services we do something niche specific and really really well and, and are these services, do you think, that public sector should be providing or, or is it the role of the third sector, as, as one might call it, to provide these services? I think uh, the public sector should be paying for it. Um, and I think the third sector should probably be um, providing it and doing yeah. it. And, and, you know, the good public sector, um, which I, I believe in as a safety net, hmm. uh, recognises a lot of the time that, that independence um, of the third sector, the volu literally voluntary nature of the third sector is the best place um, yeah. to provide a lot of this, but I think they should be paying for it, yeah. Okay. So uh, talking of payments, let's move on to the business model of your organisation then. So how do you actually mm. make money to sustain yourselves and, and how does mm -hmm. that relate to the impact you make as well? Yeah. So um, funnily enough, I was literally doing some number crunching today um, about... Uh, my naive and totally uninformed view when we started out <laughs> that we would be majority traded income right. uh, uh, sort of uh, funded, um, and how simple that was going to be. And so the, the notion was that housing associations, um, arguably those with most to lose when tenancies go wrong and it costs £10,000 to evict someone, mm. that housing associations would pay us to provide these workshops to tenants at risk of homelessness to keep them in their tenancies. Mm. Um, yes, we have done that. Yes, we do continue to do that. That is harder than ever. I also imagine children's social services departments, um, again, around that, that high risk group of young people leaving care would also commission us to support their young people. Um, that so far has proven almost impossible. 
Um, so we work with housing associations, we've worked with local authorities, um, that remains the case. We've picked up funded restricted income because we've had to. Mm. Um, and really excitingly recently, we just started working with John Lewis oh, okay. who, as part of their Building Happier Futures program and bringing in young people leaving care uh, for work experience have commissioned us alongside to do that, that housing and tenancy piece as well. Mm. Um, and that for me, supposedly as a social entrepreneur, which I'm not, um, but to me, that's a really exciting way of still having an impact and being paid through a different organization to do it because the public sector is under phenomenal strain. And I acknowledge that. And it's a, a trend coming in more and more, um, whether or not it's also a dependency is another question, but the idea of corporate organisations coming in, I, I guess yeah. it's great that um, they want to do good and they're looking at ways in which they can make that a reality rather than just a sort of bit of polish yeah. in their annual report. But yeah. um, it, it's, I guess it's a bit, you know, if organisations like you are dependent on people like John Lewis, maybe that's also a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're literally supporting eight young people. So mm. uh, I think it's 2% of our turnover. So we're not, we're not, right. we're a long way from dependent on them. Right. It's a very yeah. small pilot project to, to give it a go. Um, and I've been hugely sceptical of working with corporates. I'll be honest. Um, I'm hugely sceptical and have avoided like the plague CSR. Mm. Um, the reason I set up a social enterprise was, was equity because people right. deserve better than one-off temporary handouts. Um, and I see quite a lot of CSR, as you say, as social washing, as tick boxing. Um, and I just, I wanted to see a better model that was a bit more sustainable. So yeah. I think what, what has kept us going through through tough times, and it is unbelievably tough, is a very mixed revenue model. Okay. Okay. So some some public sector, some charitable or foundation yeah. support, and some from the, the private sector. Do you do fundraising as well? Or? No. You don't? Okay. okay. No, no. Uh, again, it sort of a, a, brings me out in slight kind of, yeah, goosebumps yeah. the thought of doing that. It's not It's not our model. No, no. Well, it's not It's not what social enterprise is about, is it? It's, it's no. sort of what differentiates social enterprise from straight charity, really. Yeah. yeah. So let, let's talk figures then in, in terms of the revenue and profit and impact that you made in year one. What did that look like? Um, so, I mean, when we incorporated October... 2013 mm. um i was working less than one day a week for your own place because i couldn't afford yeah. to leave my day job as a commissioner at norfolk county council um so i think actually in effect we were dormant until february 2014 right. um and so the first set of accounts were actually march 2015 and we made forty two thousand pounds um some some very small grants and a commission i'm, I'm pleased to say from a local housing association but, but for the first 15 months, I was literally one day a week working for the business. Okay. Um, I made sure the, the little prototype workshops I did, I did pay myself because I needed to test the model and show that people could be paid because that yeah. was, again, core to our values. Um, but yeah, it was we, we, we got started and that's all that mattered, really. Brilliant. And, and at what point then did you take that plunge into saying, right, I can I can leave my job and we're onto something. We're onto something here that I think is going to be sustainable, and I want to give it my my hundred percent commitment. It, it looks so planned when you look back on it, doesn't it? And <laughs> and it wasn't. And it was a massive risk, you know. Mm. Um, I think we got a grant for twenty thousand pounds from um, a housing trust to run a mentoring program for yeah. people struggling in their tenancies, um, and I took a gamble. Yeah, 
Um, I, you know, money is not very important to me. Um, I've never had any, and I never expected to have any. Mm. So I think in my personal life, I, I take quite a few risks. I take fewer financial risks with the business. But at the time I had my partner, I did then that year also lose him. Oh, so financially yeah. things were very, very sticky. Like everyone else, I have bills to pay. So yeah, I, I within two years, I thought I've, I've got to do this or not do this. So I shall take the plunge and hope um, money begets money. And I suppose that comes back to your, your impact question, mm. that because of my background, I think I had a fairly good grounding in the importance of impact. Mm. Um, and there isn't an output or an outcome we haven't measured since day one, because I knew that I had to report on that in order to continue to secure income. So that was 2015, you sort of stepped into the role 100%, was it, at some point yeah. that year? And and when did it really start to, to take off then? Where, where are you now in terms of your figures? And, mm-hmm. you know, how, how does that trajectory look over the last eight or nine years then i mean when i when i sort of listen to your other podcasts and listen and obviously look around at other social enterprises we're very modest um and nothing wrong uh, with that we, no no and, and and some of that is is choice because um i haven't quite figured out how we scale without compromising our impact and quality mm. um and i'm utterly committed to reaching people who are most disadvantaged, um, and that is simply expensive. Mm. Um, and that, that's where we are. Um, so we are a team of 10 full-time staff. Um, and that's pretty impressive. Until, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. It's a lovely size, um, mm. and it's a fantastic team. Um, very low turnover of staff, mm. um, hugely supportive, caring, loving team, mm. doing difficult work. Um, and up until sort of 2019, a sort of steady trajectory of, I'm not going to say breaking even because the mix of funding means that not all of our income we can make profit on, in effect subsidised by the, the funded restricted income. Mm. Um, but as we sort of emerge from COVID, the last two years, we have made a financial loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so, you know, cutting cutting staff is always a last resource. We are nothing without our team. And I don't know mm. how we would grow and sustain if we were to get smaller. I think it would send out very difficult messages to our customers. Mm. Um, so we are looking at how we reduce our current overheads. We are, as I say, we are an expensive service in this current economic situation yeah. um, because of the difficult work we do, not because we're expensive for the sake of being expensive. We're expensive because mm. we're committed to doing difficult work. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it, for, for those reasons, we, we remain small and perfect. And do you work locally or in the in the in the county or do you work all over the country? We work all over the place now, really. Mm. Um, I, I talk about the best tweet I ever sent um, in early 2020, and, and I think probably in the first lockdown, um, where a young people's charity in Brighton got in touch um, and asked us to work with them, and we're now in our our just about to enter our fourth year with them um which is really really fantastic so we literally travel down there which which of course is expensive and time consuming um and we work with young people facing impossible south coast housing shaped challenges um in their charity so we work across east anglia with this this slightly random outpost in brighton um we're currently working with sovereign housing who as of sunday and a merger are now the biggest housing association in the country 
um, there target. in the southwest. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and so that they're in the southwest, and so and that's that online work. We've taken our workshops into a very engaging, innovative online model. Yeah. Um, and we're working this week in HMP Peterborough as a yeah. as a subcontractor. So again, I think my my starting point has always been if we can make the numbers add up and make a difference, then we'll do it. Yeah. So yeah. job, and again, that's a reason not to be a charity, having worked for charities. Oh, you're not 16 and a half on the 1st of September. Oh, you don't live in that postcode. Oh, oh, yeah. you're not, you're not vulnerable enough. We can't support you. I just wanted a, a, an organization that kind of could remove those ridiculous barriers. So yeah. we tr that's what we tried to do. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. And, and having, uh, being the dad of a couple of well three children but um all of whom have tried to access certain services and mm. been been sort of thrown back from some of those services for ridiculous reasons sometimes you mm. can um, yeah i can understand what you're talking about yeah mm. yeah um so in terms of your size then what what is your sort of turnover at the moment then what's your what's the level of turnover of the business and the profitability so yeah as i said we made a loss last year we turned yeah. over 294,000 pounds last mm -hmm. year so 85% of that is staffing costs yeah um yeah. the rest is not terribly expensive to run aside from some travel to brighton and hotels in brighton um yeah so around the 300,000 pound mark currently and have you managed to you mentioned you know the uh the the need for trading income so most of that mm. is trading income rather than grants is it um it, it's been hugely variable year on year um because mm. of the need to get to start up as you said you know some kind of security was needed for me to throw myself 100 percent into it um yeah. and then covid hit so you know a whole yeah. new set of challenges and some contracts yes. we simply couldn't deliver on and, and and you asked you know do we fundraise the answer is no but did people write us checks during covid yes did i accept them yes absolutely i'd be an idiot not to um so, so the proportions of that um, income shift all the time. Yeah. Um, but I, I, as I said, I'm sort of very proud to do some number crunching this morning. And last year, 65% of our income was traded. Um, this year, right. to date, it's 77%. So it's right. been yeah. steadily going in the in the right direction. So it's not profitable, but it yeah. makes profit possible. So Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited yeah. by that. Yeah. And in terms of the journey that you've had then, which you've, you've talked us through a little bit, I wanted to ask about two things. One you've already mentioned, which is people. So mm. how have you had to change and adapt the organisation in, in terms of, it people, of the people you have found? And has it been difficult, in fact, to find and build an effective team? I mean, you know, everything we do is about kind of people, money and purpose, isn't it, really? Mm. And, and the the sort of confluence of those three um on the one hand no we've never not recruited um as i said we have had very good retention so you know re recruitment is unbelievably hard um mm. across a lot of sectors um in in norfolk it, it's difficult too um and i've got probably quite high standards um right. and so whenever we've recruited, we've had, you know, small numbers applying, even smaller numbers coming to interview, but we've always appointed. Um, yeah. And we get 
funnily enough, we get the comment from quite a lot of partners to say, gosh, aren't your people amazing? To which my slightly barbed response is usually everyone's amazing if we put the right support and care in. Um, I don't have some unique gift at finding or picking. It's just alongside my chief operating officer, Jess, who's been with us for five years, who's the main people manager and people driver at the business. Mm. We have created an environment in which we genuinely cherish, support, develop and care for each other. Um, And that's part of what makes our service expensive. But the flip side Mm. of that is our quality and our impact and our retention, all of which have costs too um so yes it's hard um yes it takes time and effort but it for us it's about living our values and Hmm. yes they're on the wall but they're lived and they're the same values if we're working with someone who's rough sleeping as they are working with someone in the team there's no there's no them and us we are simply people and that's been for me probably the biggest transformation in my outlook in how I work and how business can be run and has been absolutely fantastic. The ability, I guess, to create a good organisation is an important aspect of being a good leader and what you've just articulated Mm. is really about creating an organisation based around good values. The idea being that you can then deliver well on both the impact and and I guess therefore financially in terms of the success of the business going forward yeah it's 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 been everything and it's been the biggest learning you know I Mm. I didn't have a clue how to do any of this I don't come from a business background I don't have any any sort of particular support or knowledge or experience doing any of this but that Mm. biggest learning curve is the investment you put into people the yeah. it's an overused word but the humanity the authenticity of doing that makes every day a better day and mm. makes people happy and thrive and i know who mm. who wouldn't want that and it's yes yeah, it has genuinely been been an extraordinary experience so you've invested in people um how about financial investments so i i know that you've um you've accessed um, growth capital at various points or maybe at one point during um, your your journey so mm. what did that look like was that was that a challenge did you did you find the right sort of investment yeah and how has so, it helped you yeah you'll, you'll know that we um, got we were investment from the Sumerian partners um, mm. that was a, a chance meeting with Chris West I was on an accelerator program with the Young Foundation and Chris was there to speak and you know I think of, of all the bits of advice I've been given over the years uh, one of the best ones is just just follow up and network um, so I yeah. followed up and networked and, and and Chris Amy and Samarian and I and my board and the team we, we took our time you know it was a relationship we got to know mm. each other they they made the effort. They came up to see us. We went down to see them. Um, they got to see us warts and all. We got a small amount of um, sort of due diligence funding in order to mm. make improvements to both how we manage impact um, and how we manage our finances day to day, which was really, really useful. Um, and yes, we took on uh, patient capital. We took on social investment from them. Um, and 
it was right on the cusp of COVID. I remember, I remember I was literally on the phone to Amy the day we were yeah. told we were locked down and I was at an event in Bury St Edmunds and do we take the money now? Do we not? What do we do? Um, yeah, ridiculous. Amy being one of the people at Sumerian. At Sumerian, yeah. 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 It, was, it was a ridiculous set of circumstances to work within. Um, but what it enabled us to do was recruit um, uh, Jess, or re-recruit, I should say. She was our employment coordinator. She left. Right. Um, and then her plans were thwarted because of COVID. So we uh, employed her as our operational manager and have promoted her now okay. to a chief operating officer. We've spent all the money, um, but Jess is still with us and is that people person that makes us a better organisation. Gosh, COVID had a rather odd silver lining for you in that yeah. you managed to keep a brilliant person. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. really did. And we didn't know it was a gamble. You know, Jess didn't know if she was ready to step up. I didn't know yeah. if Jess was ready to step up. Um, but guess what? She was. So brilliant. brilliant. And, and so that money originally was due to fund... Um, the growth of your organisation, but it ended up having to fund you through COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how did you, how have you sort of dealt with that? I mean, COVID obviously, you know, like everyone, like a lot of social enterprises I speak to, you you had to very quickly look at your business model, particularly your sort of business model, and, and you successfully done that, haven't you? In a way, as you were explaining with some of your other business now, means you can, you now deliver very successful support online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the team were absolutely fantastic um, at sort of making these changes. I was ruthless, mm. if I'm honest. Um, I remember yeah. coming across a really good exercise in the April, which was just like, what do we pause? What do we jettison? What do we keep doing? Mm. And how do we support our community? And everything fell into one of those four brackets. And we just were absolutely ruthless at, at just jettisoning mm. anything we couldn't do speaking to existing customers and partners about what we were going to do. And there's been lots said about how much partnership work improved and how tolerant the public sector became and how much more they, they reached out. And, and we benefited um, from from that in terms of negotiating existing contracts. We didn't particularly pick yeah. up new ones. But I think there were two pivotal things. We'd Actually, the year before COVID, we'd been working with the Carnegie Trust um, mm. around some digital exclusion work, quite by chance. Um, yeah. And it's been a sort of accelerator program, which we won at the end and got £40,000 to, to develop some of that work. Um, so we didn't have an online offer, but we had a lot of understanding about the digital exclusion barriers people face. And it's been a real journey. Our, our brilliant team went away in that March lockdown and simply redesigned our entire offer, as, as well as other ways of reaching people virtually. Yeah. Um, and by May, we had a totally revised offer that maintained our values and our impact and our approaches, um, as well as a digital exclusion uh, strategy so that we could reach people who who couldn't, who would struggle to get online. Um, and that was an absolute game changer. Now it was a game changer for COVID. What it meant is that we yeah. survived COVID um, always with the belief and, and it, it, may, it remains the belief um, and it's proven that face-to-face um, is the preference. We are working mm. with people facing extraordinary challenges and ours is a relationships first model. Mm. So it's about face-to-face, but we acknowledge online is simply another tool. And for some people that will be the right tool um, and to reach people in far-flung um, places, what do you do? Not reach them at all or reach them online and actually still make a difference. So 
to have the online tool up our sleeve is fantastic, but it's a very small piece currently of our work. Mm. And and how do things feel at the moment? Do they feel good? They do they feel a bit precarious? You know, um, a bit precarious. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really really hard it, it changes also yeah. on a sixpence that's what's so hard when when yeah. your margins are so tight your contracts are so small I think where where we're at because the state of the economy and the state of the public sector mm. in is what I'm seeing is that contracts our contracts have always been quite small because we don't tend to yeah. go through tendering so we're tending to ask customers to buy from us who had no intention of buying from us so they don't commit a lot in the first start mm-hmm. um, and what that means is we can have probably at the moment 15 different projects running um, and I liken it to a plane taking off a huge amount of effort and cost goes into the first phase and then once you're up and cruising it's fine the problem is that with one year contracts cruise comes at about nine months and then you're coming back down again yeah. um, mm-hmm. so we're doing very complicated work with very complicated people for very small short-term amounts of money Um, and that is very very hard and Mm. the knock-on I think of uh, ongoing austerity and and cuts to the public sector is that decisions are getting closer to the wire invoices are being paid later um, and they will go with the the lowest cost so so yeah it's I'm not going to pretend it's it's hard, and we have to continue to be innovative. and And I, I think I've mentioned I need to cut our overheads. I need we need to be yeah. a cheaper service, essentially. Hello, I'm Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post, and I'm interrupting today's podcast for thirty seconds to let you know that you can get access to thousands more resources, interviews, and stories on PioneersPost.com as a subscriber. Subscribing is a really important way that you can support us. As a social enterprise ourselves, we rely on the income from subscriptions so we can produce more stories that help our growing global community of purpose-driven social entrepreneurs and impact investors to do good business better. So please take a moment to find out more at pioneerspost.com slash subscribe. And now back to the podcast. So Rebecca, are you finding that other phenomenon that seems to be happening quite a lot as a result of all the cost of living problems and COVID, which is that contracts and agreements are being stretched with, you know, you, you've got an amount of money that was supposed to be over, say, a year, and mm. it's take delivery is taking 18 months or two years, but with no extra money. Is that also a problem? Um, no, <laughs> I won't, no? Okay. won't let that happen. <laughs> if yeah. a contract's a year, a contract's a year. Um, and yeah. most of our contracts are by output and outcome rather than, right. rather than you know, um, that. I think, you know, for, for all the challenges, the housing sector has been a good ho- a good sector to work with. Once they commit, yeah. they do commit. Um, yeah. and, and we're the experts at what we do and we've got better at negotiation. Um, yeah. So we're not finding too much of that, to be honest. And do they need to do what, to have what you offer them from in any kind of statutory way or is this simply um is it a matter of you know persuading them that in order to have the impact that they want to have and deliver on the values that they have that they need you i'm just interested in how you know how Mm. necessary it is and and whether actually your cause would be bolstered by maybe some sort of stronger regulation Mm. or legislation Mm. or something that Mm. 
would enforce some of the work that you do, which is very necessary. Mm. So, I mean, the, the housing sector is being a bit hammered at the moment with, with new yeah. uh, regulation, with the Social Housing um, Act coming in. Um, funnily enough, one bit of work we're doing, actually, we've moved into is uh, tenant voice and tenant participation work because mm. there is an ongoing issue and we've seen it unfortunately because of Grenfell and then death yeah. of AWAB from, from damp and mould um, and we see it again and again about poor relationships with, with tenants and poor responses to complaints so we've moved a little bit into that space with a particular housing association and that's been really interesting so yeah. and there's the tenant satisfaction measures that are coming in as a result of that um, so that bit is regulated so that, that may be an opportunity for us because our strength, our skill set is, is relationships yeah. um, in mm. terms of the other bit of work the short answer is no um, I think there are there are a couple of challenges well one challenge and one opportunity which is why I keep banging my head against the wall um, mm. so one of the challenges is back to housing associations say well we do that already we've got a tenancy sustainment team we've got a rent arrears team we commission citizens advice whatever it might be um they've always got a an offer um of varying degrees of success there's some good stuff going on out there some good offers mm. um but none of them are doing what we're doing um so that that is yeah. um the, the challenge um the the opportunity is that in the work we can do we can help um, reduce rent arrears because rent arrears in a cost of living crisis is crippling housing associations you know their yeah. primary mission is to build houses they can't build houses if they don't turn over revenue and they don't have any revenue if they don't collect the rents so that's always the case we want to prove it's very difficult because of those short-term contracts we want to bed in yeah. for three to five years so we can really measure that um, and with one mm. with with, with on housing you know as part of a package of support we have helped them reduce their rent arrears from 3.8% to 2.5%. Now, if you've got right, 20,000 right. homes, those are proper numbers. Um, that, mm. that stuff makes a difference. And that, that, for me, has always been the holy grail, is to, to prove the impact on that scale. And that, that remains difficult, to, it, partly because... Right, I was going to say, how good are you at doing that? Yeah. Um, not yeah. very good. Um, we're really good right. at reporting on our outcomes, our proxy outcomes, our case study impact. But as I say, um, housing associations don't always have the ready data easily themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it requires a long-term partnership and all the rest mm. of it. So it's it's a work in progress, but it's definitely something we continue yeah. to work on. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to um, talking about you a little bit. I'm mm -hmm. I'm interested in in understanding where uh where rebecca white comes from um who are you what's your background what, what was your upbringing like where were you educated that sort of thing um it's 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 a mess um it's a hodgepodge <laughs> how long have you got right <laughs> um so so on the one hand the, the normal bit you know um dad was a school teacher um bunch of sort of uh, lefties um you know granddad was a proper communist uh, um, <laughs> mum failed 11 plus and left school at 16 um, you know so on the one hand that's that's fairly normal um, and, and solidly middle class you know um, mm. a lot of exposure to the arts and to culture and late night dinner conversations um, but never any money because dad was doing up the house and had four kids on a school teacher's wage mm. so yeah. on so that's the normal bit 
um the the not normal bit is um is that dad had been an opera singer and therefore became therefore became a kind of part-time opera director so my childhood was written through with classical music and just non-conformism essentially um raised to be different raised to push the buttons raised not to join the clubs to to, to be a misfit to to test um but also raised to to marry and have babies so mm. I, one particular memory is my dad refused <laughs> to go to parents evenings because there was no point because i was a girl um so Gosh, that was yeah. that was that was hard that was hard yeah mm. um so the boys were raised to go to university and i was raised just to kind of indifferently really so that strongly shaped me we all went to a local catholic comprehensive in norwich he was anti-private education because he was a proper lefty so yeah a mixed bag and did he sing while he was being a school teacher then or, oh, yeah. or did he do them separately yeah. yeah 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 so he 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 had a lovely voice and he he claimed he gave up singing because he wanted a family and you know doing the international circuit was tough but it meant he could earn a bit of cash in hand basically by by singing um so he'd do yeah. do a lot of gigs um around and about and of course that sort of brought all sorts of interesting people into our lives and interesting experiences mm. and was 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 a bit different to to my peers i mean how do you think your background has shaped your journey as a, as a social entrepreneur um it's such a difficult one i think as I say, there's sort of there's no real business background in my family at all. Although oddly, mm. my brother has runs his own private business, just dealing books. Mm. Um, but apart from that, there's 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 none. Um, so I don't mm. think there's any any particular entrepreneurial business background. I think where the influence is is doing other, just doing something that other people don't do. There's a deeply perverse streak mm. in me. If other people are doing it, then I'll do something else. Um, despite the misogyny, I had a childhood that did instill in me a deep-rooted sense of self-worth and belief, and I'm very grateful for that. And I think the luck and chance of birth that gives you that is one of the reasons I set up an organisation that wanted to have equity and social welfare mm. written through it. So, yeah, those conversations round the table, around social mobility and around poverty and around education and around that ideology has shaped my whole family mm. yeah it, there are always a mix of you know a, a bunch of contradictions in any family aren't there it sounds yeah. as though you, you you know your your father and your and your mother both gave you as you say a sort of a, a wish to be different mm. and a very sort of interesting mix of different cultural experiences mm. Um, even though your dad still thought you should you should get married and have babies yeah. and 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 not do anything to do with business, yeah, yeah. I, it, yeah. it was a weird one. <laughs> okay, so um, in terms of the challenges and decisions that you've had to make mm. as a as a social enterprise leader, um, I normally ask, well, what's your been your biggest challenge? But I, as I told you earlier, I read on your LinkedIn this week that you've had to make what I expect was quite a hard decision mm. to walk away from. A business deal mm. so maybe I'll ask about that and I know there are sensitivities and confidences mm. that you won't be able to break but could you tell us what happened and mm. why you made this decision yeah so it was an interesting one and one always reflects 
could I what could I have done differently um and mm. for the purposes of clarity and boundaries for my team should I have made a decision earlier um, yeah. but I'm I'm an optimist and I believe in giving people the benefit of the doubt so I wanted to believe it would come good um, mm. and we're not in a position to turn business away you know that's that's the reality yeah. but it was a new customer sure. um, and therefore not having either I guess the trust the relationship or the track record made that um, more difficult in terms of knowing that they were going to come yeah. good um, and you know I thought the contract was sealed and signed uh, it turns out mm. it wasn't and I'm I'm not going to feel bad about that because it's not all on me because sure. uh, certain sectors are under phenomenal strain. I also feel huge empathy for the situation they find themselves in. Um, could, mm. could they have communicated with me better? Yes. Could I have communicated with them better? Yes. Um, we took it to the wire, but in the end it involved volunteers and we can't let volunteers mm. down. We have spent staff time and other money on mobilizing this project and when it became fully clear a week ago that they weren't as far down the line as i'd been led to believe and the contract hadn't been signed mm. and therefore there was little prospect of being paid i had to to pull that out and say no mm. you know sorry mm. guys but it, it takes the piss and we need to get paid we're a small organization and we can't work for free yeah so yeah those are very hard decisions to make but um as mm. of today that remains the right decision where does that stand on the sort of gradient of you know really hard to not so hard i mean is is that the hardest decision you've had to make or have no. you had really much harder <laughs> ones much harder one. to deal with <laughs> much harder ones than that yeah what was the worst um i mean there really are so so many um a lot of the time I guess I struggle to know when to walk away because, you know, I just bang my head against a brick wall a lot of the time and get a lot mm. of rejections and a lot of no, we do this already. No, yeah. it's too expensive. No, mm. we want, don't want to, or no, we're just going to ignore you. Um, mm. So I think a lot of the time um, it's that, but yeah, you know, taking on investment was a massive decision. Um, it was a lot mm. of money for an organization of our size. And that's, that's a risk as someone who doesn't like debt. Um, so yeah. yeah, that, that was a tough decision. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think I've grown in sort of resilience and confidence so much in the last 10 years mm. that you just, I make so many micro decisions every day. You start to take them kind of in your stride, really. You know, it's just, it is part yeah. and parcel. It's just tough. Is there, a, is there a particular mistake um, that you can pinpoint that you particularly regret and that you've learned from? Again, way too many, um, probably daily. <laughs> but I would say in terms of the, the bigger picture, the, the, big, uh, the big mistake, the big learning is how isolated I've been, um, mm. that I've not developed enough of a network of support um, right. and Norfolk is not a hotbed of social enterprise and that has been yeah. hard. I went through a very different, difficult breakup in 2015 after 18 years 
my partner left me I found myself you know frankly depressed and lonely and nearly losing mm. my own home uh, I did lose my home um as a particularly pivotal time for your own place um mm. and I think I've been sort of coming back from that ever since I've been very very busy and let mm. friendships fall by the wayside and yeah a lot of the time that all those decisions I'm making I'm making on my own and I think yeah. that's yeah that that's been hard and if I know anything it's that decisions are probably better with someone else yeah isolation is a big big thing I think for a lot of business leaders and particularly social enterprise leaders yeah. I think um, you know. yeah and that it's that misfit thing you know um mm. I'm a misfit mm. in many bits of my life you know I'm not married I don't have children mm. I live on my own um and so a lot of those structures that you might have in place so we say meeting parents at the school gate you know you don't have um and that is yeah. and that is hard so it is it is it is yeah. lonely as a person and it is lonely as a business leader and have you ever experienced any kind of burnout i mean you said you were close to that but yeah. how how do you deal with things like that yeah I, it's funny the last few springs have been really hard i think there's a, there's a funny shape to the year that a lot of late planning in the public sector results in quite a lot of activity between January and March. And, and I'm often very busy yeah. setting up for the new financial year. And, you know, busy, busy is good. Busy is busy deflects other challenges. Mm. Um, and it gets all exciting. And what does a new financial year hold? And then around sort of May time, a lot of, a lot of the opportunities fall away. Um, yeah. And it gets, bleak yeah and the last two mays mm. um i've also been very struck by the perimenopause um mm. i have found unbelievably hard and i have been absolutely mm. on the floor um mm. and i you know i'm a doer i get on i do speak to people that is when i reach out there's something about having nothing to lose that makes you take yeah, risks yeah. and i ask questions and i mm. Yeah, and I get back up and I crack on. And what do you? Where do you find your support network? I mean, you you've obviously got a really strong team. Yeah. What What else drives you to keep you going when the times are challenging? <laughs> um, the work we do, that that mm. accountability, ego. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we have to be honest about that. Um, my responsibility mm. to the team and that most of our income comes from the taxpayer ultimately um, yeah. and I think back yeah. to that question about my upbringing and my aware my awareness of that um, I mm. have a real responsibility to spend that money wisely um, and mm. to make a difference to people's lives in the only way we can and yeah some people are sort of driven by faith aren't they and I'm not I don't believe, but sometimes it can feel as strong as that. Um, you know, I used to believe, um, and I'm yeah, I am I am simply very very driven to to do the best I can. Mm. That is that is who I am. I think. T- tell me about life away from the business, then, because it can be <laughs> the business. You're obviously the you and the business are obviously interdependent. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find time for yourself and what does that look like? Do people have lives away from businesses? 
Um, I really tried to work on that in the last few years. Um, I always make time for exercise every single day. You go running, don't you? Well, I don't. The knee, the knees are knackered. Actually, talking of knees. Oh, um, okay, but, right. But, but yeah, okay. I, I did. Um, I at the moment yeah. I'm cycling. Um, but yeah, so I, I will always right. take exercise. That is a huge part mm-hmm. of my my physical and emotional health. Mm. Um, I love reading. Um, I read mm-hmm. I read fiction and a lot of non-fiction. Um, I listen to a lot of fiction and non-fiction. I listen to a lot of your podcasts, mm. Tim. Um, Thank you. <laughs> in January, I got an allotment. Uh, ah. I thought I'd give it a year to see if I had enough time. And so far, 10 months mm. on, I haven't been evicted from the allotment for weeds. And I have got a good crop of carrots. Um, so I'm a country girl at heart. So well, being outside in nature on the allotment is very, very good for me. Um, I converted my car into a little camper car so I can get away and ah. um, sleep almost under the stars in a lay-by. So I, yeah, I, I try nice. and do as much of those things as I can. I'm, I, there's a man in my life yeah. that I'm seeing that I spend time with. Um, and we go away and yeah, I'm, and I'm grateful for all of those things. Great. Great. So let's talk about your your. We talked about mistakes and failures and and that side of things. Let's talk about your proudest achievement. Gosh, what would that be? Um, I mean, aside from the fact we're still here ten years on, having mm. weathered COVID, cost of living, and uh, austerity and extraordinary events. Um, mm. you know, you, you can't pretend that the awards we've won haven't meant something because they have. It's not it's mm. not about awards, mm. but they do help build your credibility. And when you are recognised by, um, you know, the, the NatWest 100, the Pioneers Post, PwC, it, it does mean something, actually, as a tiny organisation from mm. Norwich. Um, Absolutely. But I think it would also be the repeat customers, you know, the, the, the housing yeah. associations and the partners who we get to the end of a contract and say, actually, do you know what? That made a difference and we want to work with you again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the culture and values of the team. I think mm. um, I had, I, I like probably quite a lot of people in my boat. I set up an organisation that wanted to make a difference to a particular cause. Um, mm. But what I ended up becoming obsessed and interested and enlightened by was creating a values-led business. Um, and mm. I'm enormously proud of the work that the team do and the, the organisation they work for. What do you think your team would say are your your best and worst qualities as a social <laughs> business leader? Um, I think they would say that I live our values, um, that I'm hardworking. Mm. I think they'd say I was hardworking to a fault because I go on about role modelling and I don't role model looking after myself and taking time out well enough. Um, I could listen more and say less always. I think leaders always could pretty much. Um, and I could have the courage of my convictions. Mm. Do you, is that a bit of a regret sometimes? you think you should go forward with decisions more readily or more, more yeah. swiftly? Yeah, and I think that's to do with mm. the the isolation piece of, of having the absence of a a network to test those ideas with and therefore they rattle in my head 
and and it's harder then to land on a decision and i think that can come across yeah. as a lack of clarity for my team mm. and i think that's difficult for them whereas what i'm actually doing is hedging my bets right and i right. think that's probably difficult and so what do you think it if if you look at the qualities of good leadership elsewhere, what what do you think are the most important qualities of a good leader? Um, I think it is those living the values. Um, yes. I just don't think it's any good to have them written on a wall or in a book and then bully people <laughs> and treat them badly. I think, you know, it sounds so simple, yeah. but it's clearly not. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that, I, I do think listening. Um, yeah. And creating a safe environment. It's no good listening if there's nothing to listen to. You've got to create a safe environment so that mm. your team can challenge you and speak up. Yes. Um, yeah. And and equally, that, that safe environment enables honesty. So I think you've got mm. to be, be really, really honest and do what you say you're going to do. Mm. Okay. So final question before we before we get on to some quick fire <laughs> questions that I always ask at the end of these. So final question, what, what's the next big thing, uh, the, the next exciting development on the horizon for you, uh, well, for your social enterprise um, and for you yourself um, in the next year or the next five years? What do you, where do you think, you know, putting mm-hmm. on your, your optimist's mm-hmm. hat, your positive mm-hmm. hat, where, where could things go? I do want to see us grow. Um, for two principal mm. reasons, because um, because I think we make a difference. And so I yep. feel a moral obligation to reach more people and to find a way to do that. Yep. Um, and for the other reason we want to, I want us to grow is just sheer sustainability so that actually I don't have to be head of finance and head of marketing and head of HR, but that you can bring that resource in because I think that's fairer to me and fairer yep. to the team. So I want to see mm-hmm. us grow. I think there are particular bits of our work we're now doing that particularly around the online work with Sovereign, for example, um, supporting people to access a home as well as sustain a home. Um, I, want, I want us to see, want to see us do less, um, spread ourselves less thin, um, but replicate some key bits of what we do so that we can grow them um, across more housing associations. Fundamentally, I don't want us to change. I want us to keep working with very targeted groups of people. I want us to maintain our quality and impact, mm-hmm. but I want us to be spread less thin um, and work with sort of bigger customers on bigger projects as a way of reaching more people. Um, and to do that for me personally, I have to find a way of making some cost savings and reducing our, our prices. And that will be my focus over mm. the next year. Right, right. Okay, so series of quick fire questions where I ask you to choose between one word <laughs> and another. Um, you'll know some of these already from the other podcasts, but um, some of them are a bit different as well. Okay, so profit or purpose? Purpose. Society or environment? Society. Public sector or private sector? Public sector. Social impact or commercial realism? Social impact. I was going to ask you festival or fairground, but I'm going to say festival or opera. Opera. <laughs> Chekhov or Tolstoy? That's not fair. Tolstoy. 
This is because you have a degree in Russian studies. That's why I asked you that one. <laughs> coffee or tea? Depends on the time of day. Coffee. Emmeline Pankhurst or Octavia Hill? Emmeline Pankhurst. Michelle Obama or Princess Kate? Michelle Obama. Margaret Thatcher or Suella Braverman? Oh, come on! <laughs> Pass. If you have to. Cycling or running? Running. A city break or camping in the countryside? Camping in the countryside. Poacher or gamekeeper? Gamekeeper. Growth or consolidation? Consolidation. Head or heart? Heart. Evolution or revolution? Revolution. Rebecca White from Your Own Place Kick, thank you very much for joining the Good Leaders podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Good Leaders with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post. If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com. Mm-hmm.